and welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Howard Parker and me, I'm Katie Daly. This is a conversation between two men who love to talk about microphones and speakers and reverb and echo and other geeky stuff. Howard's been looking forward to this conversation for weeks. You'll learn a lot about the studio from this podcast as Howard talks with Nashville music producer and recording engineer Ben Surratt. But it's more than just that. You'll also get to know more about the personal side of Ben, who, by the way, was named the IBMA Sound Engineer of the Year in 2018 and 2019. He also serves as an at-large representative on the IBMA board, a position he'll hold until 2021. Here's Ben and Howard. Ben Surratt, uh, thanks for checking in with us today. And uh, having me. Oh yeah, you bet. Um, I'm I'm curious. We, we we typically like to start these things by going back a few years. So, uh, I'm I'm curious. Uh, were you involved in bluegrass or roots music first, and then migrated to your uh, your engineering producer role, or did it happen the other way around? Were you a engineer producer first, and somehow got involved with bluegrass or other types of music? Well, I was always a geek. Um, always. I mean, my mom would save me shoe boxes when I was a little kid so that I could draw stereo component knobs on the boxes and have my own home record player. But the first record that I really remember is the Flat and Scruggs Harmony record with Randy Lynn Rag and Chuck in the Corn. You know, where they're wearing the shirts with the string ties on the front. Oh, yes. Um, and that record, that's the record of my childhood. And, um, but my mom was a musician, her, both of her brothers were musicians. And so visiting them or when they would come to visit, it was always guitars and banjos around and, and things like that. There was always music in the house. So I always had that, but I was always a gearhead. I just, I love, I love it. I love what it can do for us. I love to work with it. And, you know, you're taking something and and bending it to your will. You're trying to accomplish a task. And getting a piece of machinery to do what you need to do is always very satisfying for me. And and were you a product of the South, or were you born and raised in other parts of the country? I was born in Indiana when my dad was going to Indiana University, and we lived there till I was 13. But my mom was from Virginia, uh, from the Shenandoah Valley near Waynesboro, well, in Waynesboro. Um, and so every summer when I was a kid, we would go – We'd go take the train from Cincinnati to Stanton, the George Washington, and then we would spend the summer with my grandparents in Waynesboro. And so I like to say I had way more birthdays in Virginia than I ever had, you know, anywhere else. And I'm a, I'm a Virginian. There's no doubt about it. I love it. I love being from there. I love the countryside. I tell my brothers and sisters all the time how fortunate they are to live in the Shenandoah Valley. And they don't take it for granted, but when you're away from it, you really appreciate it. And and how did you uh, how did you sort of migrate? Uh, I mean, you you took your your geekish tendencies and um, somehow ended up where you are today, which is one of the the uh, the better known um, uh, engineers and uh, record producers, at least in bluegrass, and I know in other genres as well. So, what uh, what transpired uh, during those years? When I was a teenager, by the time I was an early teen. We had moved to Virginia, and now I was in close proximity to one of my uncles who had a bluegrass band based out of the valley called the Hanky Mountain Express. And when I was 14, he took me, they took me on the road with them to do sound, and it was absolute heaven. And um, 
I would set up the sound system and they would play a show and I would tear it all down and, and put it all away. And then uh, Charlie Ranke was the guitar player in that band at the time. And there was also a, a music festival that happened four times a year in, in near Waynesboro called Orange Blossom Park. And um, he, Charlie, got me a job working for this recording studio called Major Recording Company. And it was Johnny Major, who was the, who was the dad and owned the company, and his two sons would go out on the weekends and do sound at bluegrass festivals. And they took me on. I was by then I was 15 and I was their kid brother. And it was just absolutely the best experience because Eddie and, and Gary major treated me like gold. And we drove around and did festivals in West Virginia and all over Virginia, anywhere we could go in a weekend. And we did wise County. We do orange blossom park. We'd go down to Smithfield. We'd go over to the Moorfield festival a couple times a year. We would go to Amelia you know, places like that. And it was just the greatest experience. I mean, I got to work with bands, you know, and I would go out and set up the stage for any incoming band. My job was to go out there with a little pad and a pen and write down what each band's setup would be and then set them up before they came out with the microphones. Then I would run back inside this truck and Eddie would let me sit beside him and I would watch him mix and he would say, okay, now you do it. And he would sit beside me and correct me and tell me what to look for and things to listen for and sort of started it so that I could train my ear as to what, how to listen, because it's a very different thing when you're listening as a, from, from a technical aspect. And uh, it, was, it was a terrific experience, and I'll, I'll never forget it. And was there a formal education involved in, the, in your engineering production role, or was it basically a, a hands-on, learn-by-doing learn experience? It was very, that part of it was hands-on, uh, very much so. It was not, it was not formal. Um, later, when I went to college at James Madison, I got really involved in radio engineering, and that was a bit more formal. But when we moved to Nashville, when Missy and I moved to Nashville in 1990, I said, I really want to study recording as, as a thing. And I enrolled at Belmont University, and I went there for two years, and cherry-picked basically all the recording and production classes and, you know, anything music technology, physics of sound, uh, math, um, studio production, music publishing. I took those classes and then, um, and then left. I had other goals, you know, in mind. Um, but, but the formal part of it came from being at Belmont. And then part of that experience was to go intern at a studio. You know, when you go to Belmont, you're expected to, you know, jerk on your own bootstraps and go out and get yourself a gig. And I interned at a studio in town for two years and really got a lot out of that and then sort of built up skills and a reputation. I worked a lot at Hilltop Studios where folks would work all day long and they wanted to come in at night and do background vocals or something like that or guitar overdubs or anything. And um, they would call me, and I would come in and engineer those evening sessions, and that was a great experience. So you set your, I'm sorry. So you set yourself up as a uh, as an independent engineer. Yes, yes. That was about that was about the best way to do it. Um, staff jobs were few and far between, and Nashville is, is more of an independent oriented place these days and in, and it was back then i mean you could get a job as a staff person but it was it was always a that, that was always in my mind considered to be a transitory thing you're going to do this 
build up some cred and then go out and, and do do your own thing. Start your own business or, you know, something like that. Now a lot of a lot of independents, what we would call second engineer, would be aligned with a couple of engineers and, you know, go out with, with folks and do all of their sessions. But the best way to do it in my mind was to diversify yourself as much as possible and swim in as many ponds as you could to build up you know, your own skills, but your own reputation and your own ability to go out and do it. But, but eventually you, um, you obviously uh, set aside some capital, and in addition to um, hiring yourself out as an independent um, engineer at a variety of uh, uh, venues um, around town, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen you behind the knobs at the world-famous Station Inn once or twice. Um, That's home. What? Station Inn yes. is home. But, but you, you've, you've obviously made an investment in some capital because you, you also have a, a, a sort of a home base of which you operate from time to time. You know, I, what I was doing was gathering gear, and, you know, it's like, something would come along like a friend of mine he says i'm going to sell this gml mic pre and i was like i really like those mic pre so i bought it i didn't have much chance to use it but i had it but then I, i'll never forget this you know there came a shift and a, it was a really hard shift in the mid to late 90s where labels you know did not have enough did not have the budget to offer artists that they had once had and uh, so I needed to find a way because it was hard. It was I was competing as an engineer. I would have to, you know, make myself have myself make money, and then the studio has to make money, and then the artist has to pay double. You know, they're paying for an engineer, they're paying for a studio, and both of those rates were about the same. And I remember Missy was out on the road, and I called her one night. I said, you know, I need to find a situation where I can do my own thing, and a person who was who was really who really encouraged me for that would be David Parmley because David had some gear at his house, and we were working at it. We I said, hey, we'll set up a studio in your house and we'll we'll do it like that. That's how that's how we did the White House record, and we did a Larry Stevenson record like that there at David's place one time. But David wanted out of it. He didn't, you know. I think he enjoyed it, but he didn't really want to be a studio owner. That's a whole other that's a whole other thing. And so. Um, in talking to Missy, I said, you know, we were living up in White House, which is 25 miles out of town. I said, I really need to find a place. And we got very lucky. We found a, we found a place that has a nice basement, that has a tall ceiling, that has a separate entrance. It has the ability for me to work on my own without, without any undue angst on Missy's part because she can do what she needs to do and I can do what I need to do and, and the two aren't intertwined. And um, so when we sold our house in White House, that gave me some capital to get this started. And, and after that, you know, you've got the, you know, you sort of got the bare bones, like everything's sitting up on sawhorses and you're trying to make records. And then bit by bit, you just keep poking away at it and making this improvement and that improvement, or you learn something, or you've been somewhere where someone else is doing something cool. And you're like, Oh boy, I'd like to do that. Let's do that. And bear in mind the whole time this is happening I'm as an independent engineer, I'm working in other people's home studio or I'm seeing other people's home studios. Rich Adler had a killer place when we first moved to town out in Bellevue. 
And um, just the vibe of it I thought was really good. And then another friend of mine in East Nashville had a place, and he was gone for the better part of a year, and he just said, hey, give me my rate for this place, and you can use it. And through that process, you know, you get to see what works for you at their place and what you need to do differently. So that steered a lot of the decisions and, and how we would approach it, how I would approach it here. And I've been very fortunate. I've worked very hard, but I've been very fortunate to get where I am today. Now, one of the, now there, there's a, um, certainly a, a lot of information about your uh, involvement in a variety of projects um, through the years. I happen to pull down um, uh, the All Music uh, database, um, of which I'm not sure how, how accurate it is, but it, it certainly goes back to 1990, and, um, and there's some un, undated stuff out there. And I note that um, in, in addition to your involvement as an engineer in, a, in, a, in, well, virtually all of these um, um, projects, but you're also listed as producer in, in a fair uh, number of them. Can, can you basically um, describe uh, the role of engineer versus the role of producer and when you might be one or the other or even both? You know, there's a little bit of overlap in the tasks because anytime you make a creative decision, and that creative decision can be something from sing that verse again to play that solo again to no, we've got it, don't change a thing, to I think this microphone sounds best on the banjo, or I think if we move the position of this microphone to here, it might clear up something else <clears throat> Excuse me, down the road. Or, you know, so, so those kinds of things overlap. I, I think that an engineer is, is the, the creative part is trying to capture the sound that you hear as accurately as possible. So especially in bluegrass, because it's so demanding. So, you know, you're, you're getting started for the session and you go sit in the room where they're playing. And I say, play me some banjo. Okay, do that. Now play something up the neck. I want to hear what that sounds like. And then I'll... I'll select a microphone, and I'll usually have a good start at that, select the microphone and do it, and then listen to it in the control room and compare what my ear is hearing live in the room to what I'm hearing in the control room. So a producer's job is really, it, it's, it's fairly broad, because it's anything from just, I'm just here to sign the checks for everybody and just ride over the whole thing, to, you know, I'm involved in song picking, I'm involved in helping with some songwriting ideas or something like that because the producer is the person who is really trusted with the whole creative process. They are the person who is ultimately responsible for everything that happens on the record. And um, so if you're, if you're working, you know, if an artist and a producer who, who trust one another are working together, some really great things can happen because, you know, you, you sort of get to know one another and you know strengths and weaknesses and, and, and a producer is sort of supposed to be sitting, you know, the, if, if you think of the artist as at sea level trying to play or sing, then the producer should be at 10,000 feet surveying a little more of the landscape. You still got an eye down there on the person in the boat singing and playing, but you're looking ahead, you're looking at where things have been, you're looking to the left and to the right, and just sort of riding herd on everything that's happening 
there's a lot of times where you got to get down right in the boat with someone and help them through it. But then the rest of the time, you need to you need to step back and get the overall view because once you get involved in the absolute minutia, which always happens, it happens to everybody. It's just part of it. You've you've got to stay objective. You got to say, okay, this solo is great, and this and the person will say, I can do a better one. Please let me do a better one. You say. This thing has got a lot of vibe and a lot of soul, and we should stay with it. So if the artist and the producer trust themselves, then um, that's when good things will happen. So the engineer is sitting with the producer, and the engineer is sort of another avenue for the producer to listen to what's going on. The engineer will say, I heard this go by. I heard that go by. Did you hear that? You know, because there's – a hundred things going on at one time, and, and you can't hear them all. But a good engineer is going to be looking out for the producer and helping them get the job done. So a, as an engineer, when, when, when you uh, – let me, let me step back for a second here. When, when uh, during, during a project, if, if you are assuming both roles, the engineer – um, and the producer, uh, th- that means that as a producer, you have uh, uh, a knowledge of the artist and what the artist's uh, goals are and, and have a musical background um, of your own uh, sufficient enough where you can feel comfortable in drawing out the best of that artist? Yes, I think so. And the artist has to, you know, you've got to have a, 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 a level of trust between the producer and the artist, you know, because the artist, artists are, are there, you know, stripping everything away and laying their soul bare. They need, to, they need to trust that what you're doing is only to their benefit. And uh, so if you have that kind of relationship, it's, it's really good. It's a, it's a great thing. It's one of the things that's that attracts me so much to it. I love, I love producing. You know, it, it, uh, th- there was a, there was a time, um, where I would be, um, I, I would buy, uh, uh new, new music and, um, and would sort of, uh, uh, check out, uh, liner notes in the back of the, the vinyl or the, or, or the CD and, and would sort of cringe every time I saw four magic words where, which were always produced by the band. Um, is, sh- should I have automatically cringed when I have read that or, or is, <laughs> or, or, or does, or, or do those things happen more often than not? Well, it, you know, there's always, the the diplomatic response would be to say everyone ultimately has to produce themselves you got to you got to monitor your own thing you know if you're playing the fiddle it's up to you to make sure that you're in tune you're playing the you're supporting the vocal you're doing the right thing so everybody's everybody's got a little bit of that and so i think it would just depend on it depends on you know the, the the music tells the tale. So if the if you listen to it and it was produced by the band and the record sounds killer, then producing by the band is really good. Um, so that's a harder that's a harder thing to really sort of nail down in 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 that respect. But I would say if the music is good, um, if it moves you, if it's a creative thing, if it's if it feels like art, then then that's what they need to do. 
I I don't you know I I don't know I I think I think that's what it really boils down to is what does the music sound like? Understood. Um, okay, so I'm a I'm a bluegrass band and um, and. Uh, Typically, bluegrass being bluegrass for the majority of of, of the artists today, um, uh, we're, we're a pretty independent lot. We're we're not assigned to a major label. We're, there's no A and R individual that's out there sort of looking out for us and bringing us new material or bringing us into a a, a label. But I have an interest in in recording a a, a project, and I'm aware that. Ben Surratt is out there. What 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 would the typical, if there is such a thing as typical, what would how would the process start um, for that band in contacting you, and and what would what would you be asking that that band um, during that initial conversation? Well, you know, you're always flattered when someone asks you because that that automatically implies a level of interest in your skill. So, you know, you kind of, you feel good there, but then you listen to the band. You would, you would listen. I, I would say, send me some music. What have you got? And they'd say, well, I don't really have anything. And I'd say, okay, go to band rehearsal and record it on your cell phone and email it to me and get a fix on what kind of material it is that they're looking for. And then you think is, and then you think to yourself as a producer, does this, does this suit my sensibilities? And, I, and I'm not saying this from – I want to be careful to not say this from the point of do I like this music or do I not like this music? Are these good musicians or not good musicians? You think about this as is what they're playing something that I can add? Is there something I can bring to the table to make this the best that it can be? And – if you think that the answer is yes, then that's that's the starting point. And you say, I th- I think I can do this, you know. And it depends on what your own your own taste comes to play to a certain extent. But um, but there could be something in how they play or something in how they come to a song, and you go, Wow, I want to be in on this. I want to I want a part of this. This sounds really awesome. I want to be part of it, and so you know you would you would progress from that point, and it could be something that where what they're doing you're like i I'm just not hearing how I could improve this or I'm just not hearing how I could bring something to the table with these folks and you know the 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 classical Nashville good way to say this is i I, I don't think it's a good fit, you know, I wish you guys the best, but I don't think I can do this. And, but I would say those instances are pretty rare because with bluegrass, we all, I mean, if you're in bluegrass, you've got to love all parts of it. You already do because you're, you're already there. Uh, so um, the odds are it's going to be yes more than no. And then the rest of it is just logistics. You know, when do they want to do the record? How long do they want to do it? What, you know, how much... What's, what's their budget for doing things? Because a lot of producers have a certain way of working. And so you, you just sort of have to hammer out the logistics of it after that. And if 
after after that a um, after that an, an initial contact. I mean, let let's just presume for a second that um, um, that this is a a, a, a new band uh, that that we're talking to with not a lot of studio experience or maybe no studio experience, especially if they don't have any. Uh, previously recorded music and they've got to go out and record something on an iPhone and send you an MP3 file or something like that. But uh, it, do you offer some type of coaching uh, to those bands and those types of situations prior to them actually entering the studio? Absolutely. Yeah. I'd say if you want to do that, then let's get together and let's talk about it. Let's, you know, and I would, per, I would prefer to do that. If I'm working with a band as a producer, I would rather be there for you know any rehearsal where we're sort of hammering out you know maybe arrangements or something like that do that stuff work that stuff out together and yeah if it's a band that doesn't have much experience or you want to coach absolutely you would you would do that and uh and one you know folks like you know bands in that situation the level of angst can be quite high because they're unfamiliar with the process they, they don't realize that or they may not realize that it can take as long as it can take because you're looking for you're looking for something and and you got to get it out of them and and they're uptight about their performance or how long something is taking that can be a real vibe killer in the studio and so you want to keep things you want to keep things moving and keep expectations lively in that way but also as a producer if you work with these folks ahead of time then what you're doing is you're establishing a plan so that when you're in the studio, you're just working the plan. You're getting the, you're concentrating on performance instead of concentrating on trying to get the arrangement nailed down. There will always be changes at the, you know, you get to the line of scrimmage and you get, you just got to call an audible. This isn't working. Let's do something else. You know, let's try this a different way. Let's flip these solos or do something like that. You know, that always that always comes to play, but the more of that you straighten out ahead of time, the better off you'll be once you get in the studio. Do you have any stock advice for for those types of bands as they enter the studio? Uh, um, you know, sleep well, eat well, drink nothing <laughs> except for the good stuff. Sleep. There's always sleep well, eat well. Um, take your instrument to a luthier that you trust and have them set it up you know if you need frets dressed um if you need an action adjustment if you need something like that and th these are all things to get you as comfortable as possible because that's the goal if you're comfortable you're going to be better you're going to do better so let's rule out the low-hanging fruit you know like oh geez you come in there and like oh this, this fret over here has been bugging me well let's take care of that before you come in the studio so you're not fighting it the whole time and uh you know, and your mandolin is your bridge in the right spot on the fiddle. You know, the banjo is the bridge in the right spot, or, you know, things like that. And then there's a lot of take care of yourself. You know, be comfortable. Bring, you know, and like like here at my place, I'll have snacks. I'll have things to drink, stuff like that. Um, and sleep is certainly part of it. You know, you don't want to, you know, 10-hour days are really long days when you're the one who's doing the work. And your brain will be mush when you get done. Um, because you're working so hard. So, but I would say prior to the, what, what, what we're discussing right now is probably, you know, two weeks before the session. But, but prior to that, I would say get together as a band, 
you know, well, for for example, when Missy was playing with Claire Lynch, you know, they were working on a record and they would go out and do a run of shows and they would have some free time at the hotel in the morning. They would all get together and I would all sit down and everyone would, would bring out their phone or some recording device and they would play the song and they would record it. And then they would go to school on it, so to speak. They would learn from what it, what it was that you're hearing. So record your, you know, recording your rehearsals and then be willing to be self-critical. This is working. This isn't working. How can we make this better? You know, you'll, you'll hammer out those things because every step of the process when you're making a record is like taking a magnifier and turning up one more click of magnification. And the more sanding you do, the more fine polish work you do before you get there, the better everything else goes. And it makes it more enjoyable for everybody else. In, um, in in today's world of um, um, music uh, consumption, um, there's been a real shift, uh, at least in 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 my opinion, uh, away from um, projects to singles. Um, is this something that you and bands have to be aware of uh, uh, prior to entering a session? Uh, is there a preference on your part? Um, whether you deal with a collection of tunes as a bunch of singles or as a um, cohesive project? Well, you know, that's always, there's always a, a certain amount of creative satisfaction when you've got 10 songs and there's a thread that runs through them all and something that ties them together because it just gives you, as the creative person, it gives you the opportunity to take the listener on a journey that they may not have been on before. They may not have considered before, but the economic reality, you know, is that, you know, folks don't always have the money to, to do something or to do a full length project or, you know, creatively an EP is where they're at right now. And so that's fine as well. Um, I do know that some record labels seem to focus on the singles concept and then bring it around to a whole, record once everything you know once they've had once they've had 10 singles come out then they'll turn around and do a project and then other record labels are still are you know more traditional they want a whole project because there's there is some stickiness in the market where you know if you're trying to sell records from the record table and you're trying to get 15 or 20 dollars from a project they want to see a certain number of songs that's that's part of the value that they want to get out of the experience so you've sort of got to bear you got to bear that in mind, but it's very easy to see, especially with you know streaming and 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 what's going on. If you if you bang out singles every you know period of time, then it sort of keeps you up in everyone's radar a little better than promoting one record. So I don't you know that's a that's a tougher call for me. I don't really know. And I don't know if we really know which way is going to be the ultimate way, and there may not be an ultimate way. It'll just be what people prefer. And and whatever it is today, it'll probably be different in five years from today anyways. Oh, for sure. You know, I mean, and, and really, we're all still, I mean, even though it's been around for a while, we're all still figuring out the streaming thing and what the best way is to get music into the hands of the consumer. But what I do know is that if you're a band traveling and doing gigs, that there is still a market 
for you to have a CD to sell at the record table. People still want that. They want that experience. They want to stand there and buy it from you and have you sign it. So bands that ignore that, you know, are leaving money on the table, so to speak. They're ignoring that at their peril. And uh, so I think that the more traditional way is still very viable, especially if you're a touring artist. You know, it's it's occurred to me that uh, uh, during this conversation so far, um, uh, you've dropped Missy's name a couple of times, and we should probably um, do her the great service of of identifying her as uh, as Missy Rains. Yes. Okay, just just so we're clear on that. Yes, married to Missy happily thirty some years. It's awesome. Awesome. And an awesome award, award-winning bass player and band leader and vocalist and everything else. Yes, she's a she is a she is a creative force. It's it's a, it's amazing to work with her as well because she's a, she's an artist. You know, there's always something there's always something to learn there. It's a great it's a great thing. Let's let's uh, switch gears um, a, a little bit here. If I were a um, a young Surratt, uh, a young Ben Surratt, um, in 2020, um, um, thinking I'm going to become a independent recording engineer these days. What what advice are you going to give young Ben Surratt in in 2020? Uh, stay away from the business; it's tough, or or jump right in and go to Belmont and do what do what the older Ben Surratt did. Well, for me, it's, you know, I would have, having, having been in the recording, you know, this part of my, I don't know, life experience, I've been a recording engineer longer than I've done anything else. And it's been absolutely, without a doubt, the most rewarding. I would have done it sooner. But in my defense at the time, you know, in Virginia, I mean, a tape machine cost $50,000. That's just a tape machine. That doesn't include the console, you know. So, so what it meant was that the opportunities back then, you know, the barriers to entry into that market were much higher. And uh, and in the, and in, and at that time in the Shenandoah Valley, there just there wasn't, you know, there was majors, but they were, you know, they were already fully employed. They weren't looking for anybody. And to start a studio was was going to be something else. So. I would have loved to have started recording sooner. I don't know that I would have had the opportunity without moving to Nashville because that put a whole lot of studios at your fingertips. That made it a lot easier for me to to pursue this work. And when Missy, you know, Missy and I talked about it, this you know, this was years ago. She said, "I want to come to town. This is where the opportunity is for me." And I said, "Great. So we'll come to town and I'll get to pursue recording, which is something that I always wanted to do." So I kind of took you around the Horn of Africa on this answer, but I just would have started sooner. I would have moved to town sooner. I was 30 when we moved to town. I would have done it when I was 20 if I'd had my brains. And if I were starting up today, if I, if I were someone else that just sort of rolled, rolled into town today, um, excluding, of course, the, the present crisis, um, but, but, but let's say where the crisis has passed and we're um, – um, we're sort of on the the uptick, and and there's a light at the end of the tunnel. If I wanted to jump into the business today, what 
what do you think? Um, worth doing? Viable? Um, uh, what what what's it take in twenty twenty to sort of jump in? Well, part of that answer is you know it's, it's taking what it's always taken. It just takes money. Um, you know the good news is it's easier than ever to buy the gear that you need. The bad news is it's easier than ever to buy the gear you need um, because there are a lot of engineers in town. There are a lot of bluegrass engineers in town, and um, be prepared. Be prepared. You know, it's not. It's it takes it. It's just like sort of like being a musician. It takes a long time to build up some credibility and some trust in the people that are around you, and um, some of that happens by pure luck. Some of it happens by you know the dent of hard work, uh, but. Be prepared to be patient because, you know, it's like a friend of mine says, he's, he's been in town for 30 years. He says, I, he says, I've been struggling for 30 years, you know. And um, so I would say be prepared to be patient. It doesn't – none of it happens overnight. Uh, it, it really doesn't. Um, and if it's what you really want to do, it's what you'll be doing. If you really want to engineer, you're going to find a way to do it one way or another. Um, and if you don't, then you may realize it's, it's really not what it is that you want to do. I can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, there may come a time where I'll need to, but right now I can't imagine not making records. It's too rewarding. Well, going, going back a few years, I'm, I'm always curious um, stories. I mean, everyone typically has a uh, sort of an aha moment where the, the, the light bulb sort of goes off. And 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 you realize that oh this is something I want to be involved in. Were were, were you sit, sitting around one day perhaps listening to the music and all of a sudden heard a track and said you know oh my god this is like the perfect track it it it, it for whatever reason technical reason or musically and something that really lit up lit up a light bulb for you. Was, was there a particular track or a project or, um, or even a, uh, an individual like that that you had met that uh, sort of gave you um, great enthusiasm for this and made you make the leap? Yes, and this is so super geek. Um, but J.D. Crow and the Kentucky Mountain Boys record Ramblin' Boy was recorded at Lemco Studios in Lexington, Kentucky by Cecil Jones. And he was a guy who had a studio on some property out back behind his house. I was never there. Jerry Douglas worked there all the time. He never, you know, Cecil cut an amazing amount of material. He did, he did records for J.D. Crow. He did records for Larry Sparks. Tony Rice's first solo record, Tony Rice guitar, was cut there. Um, and I remember, but, but specifically, I'd gotten this J.D. Crow record from my Uncle Tom, who's a banjo player. He's the one who had the bluegrass band that I did sound for. And he loaned me that record. And, oh, God, it was just, it was the bomb. I mean, that, that record was just so good. And I looked on the back, you know, I mean, for a long time, no record label listed credits. But that was the thing about bluegrass was that record labels would throw this minutiae at you. And when you're a kid with a sponge for a brain, you just soak it all up. And, I, and I'm listening to this record, and the music is so good. And I, and I read back there, and it's recorded by this guy named Cecil Jones. What was that like? You know? And then 
Tony Rice's so, – so, so think of this experience. Instead of one big bang, think of it as this big flywheel that gets going, you know, and it's like that – that crow record was the first nudge. Okay, now the wheel is moving. It's moving slow, but it's moving. So that comes along. And I'm like, wow. So then you start seeing some seldom seen records, and you're seeing that. Um, oh, what is his name? Roy Homer was doing their records. And I was like, wow, what's that like? You know. And then, and then they start doing records at Bias, and you're like, what is that like? And then... You know, I'm 19 years old, and Manzanita comes out, and I thought that that was the thermonuclear explosion that just blew my mind. And right there on the back, Billy Wolf at 1750 Art Street Studios there in, in Berkeley. And I was like, God, i got to do that. That's awesome. i got to have it, you know. He's eat up with it. Do you remember what about the... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's just that was the you know that was the that was the thing. I had to by that time the flywheel is fully up to speed and there's no stopping this. You know, try to stop a flywheel once it's running. It can't. So what what do you think? What was it? The was it the music itself? I mean the the, the presentation. Um, I mean, taking Manzanita a, a, as an example. I, I mean the I mean the. It, Got it. I mean, it was Tony Rice and guitar, uh, and beyond that, uh, I mean, to my ear, I, I'll I'll have to go back and re-listen to it again on on vinyl. But it was incredibly, I thought it was incredibly well recorded. Uh, it, was that your impression? Your impression as well? Yeah, it was. And but for me, it was for me it was this awakening because you know when you know, you go back to the Crow record and. It was good for the time. I mean, these days, you know, the music holds up, but the recording process is sort of a different thing. I mean, I could I could bore you to tears over the technical aspects of what's going on because I'm I'm just so bored in on that stuff. But by the time you get to Manzanita, um, I'm listening to this music. Of course, you know, on the one level, the music is just absolutely killing me. You know, it's just so good. And um, but by then. I've been around gear a lot and, and I've had my own experience, you know, doing sound with my uncle and doing sound with major recording and stuff like that. And you just get to this point where you're like, how did he do that? How did that, how does that sound like that? What do I need to do to make it sound like that? You know, and he sort of became for me, Bill, that work with Billy sort of became the gold standard of how bluegrass could be presented because I, it's, it's, it's hard to explain and, 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 you know, to hold that record up, it makes others not as much. And I would not want to take away from someone else's creative endeavor, but the way Manzanita comes across, it's just, it just, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe something could sound like that. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, I want to do that. I want to make things sound like that. And, and it's not just, highs versus lows or you know what i mean it's not it's it's how billy would place elements within this sound field that made you feel like you were right there and um 
I mean, you could sit between those speakers, and it would just blow you away. And um, and I had to have it. I couldn't I, I couldn't turn back after that. And I mean, these days has the uh, the widespread um, usage of digital technology has that affected the quality of the recorded material um, versus I'm, I, I mean I don't want to get into the old you know digital versus analog argument that's stale and tired as far as I'm concerned no let's not do that no 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 uh, uh, but does it have any bearing at all I mean uh, can can it be abused uh, digital technology be abused can it be as warm as is analog utilizing today's tools i say yes um i think that you know we we do you're right we do have to take one step back and say okay we're not going to talk about whether analog is better than digital or whatever because there are other factors involved that make you make that decision like budget but you have tools at your disposal you know if you like if you like things to sound warm or things to sound meaty, well, there's a whole, there's a legion of microphones that will help you sound that way. There's mic pre's that will make you sound that way. Um, there's lots of ways. There's ways that you can approach how it gets into the machine and how it gets mixed out of the machine to, to the two tracks that everybody else gets to hear. There are a lot of things you can do that, that can give it that feel. And um, and that now that part of it didn't really exist, you know, in the 90s when digital was coming out, and we were still learning how to make converters that would sound good. But we're but we're sounding pretty good right now, you know. It's it, and 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 I think the thing that we always have to focus on is that fidelity always will play a role. There's no discounting that. But some of the best music that has all set us all on fire that we just could not get enough of was recorded pretty poorly, <laughs> you know? I mean, it could have been just trapped in the technology at the time or, or something like that. But, um, but a good song is going to come through. You know, my job as the engineer is to stay out of the way. You know, I, wanted to, I want a record that I work on, I, I want it to sound like I wasn't even there. I want the music to come out of the speakers and have people think that they're there, it's especially in the bluegrass context where, where we're trying to relive a moment. We're trying to make it feel like those people are live in the room with us right then. So if that's your model, which I think is a valid model, it's not the only one, but it's a valid model. If you're trying to do that, then the engineer has got to do the best they can to make it sound like they weren't even there. If you can make it sound like that, I think you've really done your job. Is, is is there a, a danger, um, and I'm not saying that there is, but is, is there a danger in 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 making a modern uh, bluegrass recording too obviously commercial? Um, if you understand the question, I'm 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 not even sure I understand the question. I just asked it. Well, I think that some of that is what's your what's your market who's your market and um if you're and, and and i think that to to take that premise back one step that's really incumbent upon you know the artist what is it that what is it that they're trying to convey 
And um, it could be that what they're trying to convey, I mean, if you think Mike Bluegrass is probably more commercially known, I wouldn't say that it's a commercial thing, but it's more, if you think of commercial as mass market, it's known more in the mass market these days than it's probably been at any other time. But um, I think that, hmm. In, in in my mind, it, it uh, I'm just I just had a weird thought that uh, that I'm um, I'm wondering if, if if there's a segment of the uh, bluegrass um, consumer um, that would be enthusiastic if someone came out with a uh, uh, with a project that was recorded in mono with the highs and lows chopped. I think that there are people who would love that. I know people who would love that. If you want to love that, go see Danny Barnes, you know, the banjo player. Um, he loves that kind of stuff. I love that kind of stuff. Because what are they trying to – what is – folks like that, what are they trying to do? They're trying to capture a feeling. And it could be – it could very well be that recording it like that, or, or certainly not necessarily recording it like that, but mixing it like that brings them closer to that feeling. So – if that is what they're going for, by all means, that's what they should do. Is there is there someone is there someone out there doing that these days? I, I was being facetious, actually. Well, you know, um, I do know that Carl. Oh, uh, big country. He 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 liked to do records in that spirit. You know, I did a record with Ed Snodderly. He's a incredible artist from East Tennessee, and we mixed a record and. And as we went along in the process, you know, it was leaning him toward more of a mono thing. And this record did not turn out to be mono, but it turned out to be more mono than most records would normally be, you know. And that's and what he realized is that he we 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 do a mix, and he'd say, okay, let's pan these things not quite so far out. Let's bring them a little more close together and see what happens. And when we did, the energy and the and the drive of of some of those songs that he was talking about, it helped them. It made it more, for him, it was a little more of an old time e feel, and he appreciated it. And, and so that was, that kind of stuff is like that. I mean, Danny Barnes, he just, he loves, you know, he's like the rest of us. He loves the old 50s flat and scrugs that was soaked down in reverb, and it's all in mono, and, you know, and, it, and it's, it's like we all get off on that, on the drive and the groove of those recordings, and we're all just trying to capture that. Well, but in those in those days, I mean, Flat and Scruggs were certainly using the best technology available to them at that time, and 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 today, uh, uh, I'm assuming that most bands would use the best technology that they could afford to be using today. I would say yes, with the caveat of seems as though, and I think this is a very good thing, it seems as though there's a generation or a movement among people who have rediscovered the value of a tube mic and a piece of gear that's got a transformer in it. And what a transformer does is that it passes, it helps pass a signal from one stage of something to another. But a transformer is, is you know, and it's a, it's a magnet in the middle with windings on either side, and it's basically transforming the signal, whether it's doing it, and we're going to get super geek here. It might be 
just a buffer between one stage of amplification to another or from one piece of gear to another. But that iron changes the sound in a way that our ears are very familiar with, so we tend to crave that. And in the 50s and 60s and 70s, passing something through a transformer was the way that it was going to get done. It was in the you know, late 70s and 80s when everyone started using little amplifiers to do the same thing because op amps were cheaper and slew, this thing called the slew rate was faster, which meant it responded to transients much better. And so the pendulum started swinging that way and everyone wanted to use, you know, well, they, didn't want, they didn't want that stupid old iron in there messing things up slowing down my signal, you know, stuff like that. And then now the pendulum is swinging back the other way, and everyone's like, you know, those tube mics, are, they really did sound really good. And, and you know, pieces of gear like, you know, that's made by folks like, like API, stuff like that, that stuff's come back around because people realize that there never was that really anything wrong with that. And that kind of sound is a meaty, full-throated, in your face more kind of a sound. And if that's the sound that goes with your art, you know, if that's how you want it to sound, then that's what you need to be doing. And I note that there's plenty of new gear being offered today um, at sale, which basically uh, at least profess to um, emulate or clone um, gear of 40 and 50 years ago. Oh, absolutely, and it's it's um, it's 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 been a movement that's been coming on for a long time, but the, but it's really it's really at a frenzied pitch. You know, it's like if you're a microphone maker and you're not making your own version of a U47, then everyone sort of wonders why you aren't. You know, and and those older you know those older vintage microphones, those older vintage amplifiers, they're their performance is well documented and uh and their components are well documented and a lot of that stuff can be reproduced a there's a couple of things that you know depending on who you are and, and where it lies where people say where the magic lies you know it's like in the tube itself because certain certain tubes are no longer available where then in the 50s they were plentiful but now they're no longer available or certain transformers can't be wound the same way because the factory is long gone you know those those kind of things people are going to nitpick over, but um, but it's not you know that's part of the good that's part of the good thing about you know doing this today is that you may not be able to afford an eighteen thousand dollar Neumann U forty seven. That's one mic, you know, where you can go to you know name anybody, go to John Peluso and get his version of a forty seven. That's going to sound really good something could happen to that microphone and you would still, you wouldn't lose, you know, your house over it. Uh, and so, and there are things that can go wrong with vintage microphones that leave you no choice as to how to repair them. And, and the process of repairing it strips the value from it. So you have to, you have to be thinking about those things as well when you're making those kinds of gear purchase decisions. Yeah, I, I I will note, uh, by the way, before we get out of here, um, that you are an award-winning um, engineer, having won um, sound uh, sound engineer of the year uh, twice, IBMA 2018-2019, and uh, also a Dove Award winner for uh, uh, Beyond the Rain uh, Pine Mountain Railroads. Correct. I hope are there are there any more awards we should be aware of and. 
Um, I've got a Grammy nomination for Missy's uh, record, Royal Traveler, for this of course, yes, uh-huh. most yep. recent run. And then I also got a Grammy nomination for a Peter Rowan record that I did that Allison Brown produced on Compass Records called Legacy, which was bucket list, buddy. Let me tell you. That was Ben Surratt and Howard Parker talking about what you'll need to know if you're thinking about going into the studio to record. Our thanks to Ben for his advice. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Apple and Google Podcasts, Facebook, and on katydaily.com. I'm Katie Daly. Thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories.